You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to, uh, to week two of Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between. Uh, it's good to see so many people out and so interested in this topic. And I was trying to evaluate which was more popular, Heaven or Hell. And it's, it's, it's close, it's close. There's a, l- a lot of people here tonight. So tonight, uh, we're going to talk about hell. So let's pray. <laughs> we better pray. We need to pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and our lives only will work the way they're supposed to work. We will only have meaning and full happiness when our lives are aligned with you. And we do pray that you would guide us in our conversation tonight. So we commit tonight to you and all that goes before us, and we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin with a a vision of the end. In Revelation chapter 20, John the Apostle describes what he sees. He says in, in verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books, in the books, according to what they had done. And the gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, this week we are going to be exploring hell. And um, throughout this week, I've been getting lots of emails and lots of questions from people. Really good questions. And so I just want to let you know that some of the questions we are going to get to. And so I I don't want to jump ahead sometimes. So Ray, you asked me a very good question uh, tonight. And I was talking to Mike, and Mike's going to be covering that question in a few weeks. So, so we will hopefully get to them. And then I was thinking part of our very last session together will be, all right, what have we missed? And we'll just kind of go through lots of questions, okay? Um, last week, we did touch on words uh, that come to mind when you think of hell. And I asked you about some of them. And some of the words you said were fire, pain, tears, lake of fire, suffering, absence of God, darkness, cold. And throughout history, um, some people have talked about hell, the doctrine of hell, in pretty graphic language. Uh, The one that stands out to me always is Jonathan Edwards, 18th century theologian from New England, who wrote a, uh, and, and gave a very famous, or depending on your position, a very infamous sermon. 
And a lot of English students throughout generations have had to read this sermon, actually. And the sermon is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was part of a two-part series that Jonathan Edwards gave to his congregation. And this is what Edwards said in part of his sermon. He says this, describing hell. He says, that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gaping mouth open. And you have nothing to stand on, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Now, people have read this. And uh, one, one, one commentator said this. They said, this sermon is as vivid a glimpse into hell as the imagination of man has been able to conceive. And interesting, when Edwards gave this sermon, the effects of the sermon were, were electric. Um, people began shrieking and yelling and screaming and falling out of their pews and roll, rolling in the aisles. Um, they're, they're feeling like they were on the verge of slipping into hell. It's an interesting uh, description. I've read, the, uh, I've read the account. In fact, we know that so many people were so disturbed by this sermon that Edwards, as he's given the sermon, he actually had to stop so that the shrieking and the yelling would die down before he'd carry on in a sermon. Yikes. Now, you have to see this. Now, when I mention Jonathan Edwards, you have to realize Jonathan Edwards is not some yokel from the countryside. He's not some, you know, oh, I'm going to scare them up by giving them this. this. John, Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest theologian in America's history. Unbelievable mind, Jonathan Edwards. Now, all to say is that today, our views of hell have changed quite a bit. Even among Christians, I find that hell is seldom, very seldom brought up. And when we read Edwards, sometimes we're more, you know, amused or shocked, uh, or, or more amused than shocked or disturbed. And we read that a lot of people don't think much about hell anymore. There was an article back in the 1970s that said this about hell. It says, how can you take hell seriously? Hell has become so trivialized that it has even lost its force as a curse. Go to hell, is a suggestion friends share. The hell it is, is an exclamation of surprise and incredulity. Damn it, is something we utter when we stub our toes. It's not an eternal sentence. Going even further back, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, once remarked, hell is neither so certain nor as hot as it used to be. Richard Balcom, a well-known uh, biblical theologian, he summarizes how people think about hell these days. He says, up until the 19th century, almost all Christian theologians taught the reality of eternal torment in hell. Since 1800, this situation has entirely changed. And no traditional Christian doctrine has been so widely abandoned as that of eternal punishment. 
Among the less conservative, universal salvation, either as a hope or a dogma, is now so widely accepted that many theologians assume it virtually, assume it virtually without argument. Saying, you know, people have kind of given up on this idea of hell. Why the change? I think a lot of people find the doctrine of hell very disturbing. Right? It seems so incongruent with the love of God. And, and a lot of people would say, a lot of leaders in the church say, you know, we can't talk about hell, because if we talk about hell, a lot of people aren't going to be interested in church, and they're, they're just going to keep, they, they want to have nothing to do with church. And so for many people today, if you're going to talk about hell, you're going to have to, you know, you talk about it differently. People still mention hell, but hell means something different in our world today. Hell, hell is, is usually a word that you use to describe a really tough week. You know, what's your week being like? Oh, man, it's been hell. It's just been so tough. Oh, you know that those friends of mine, oh, man, they have been going through hell. That's typically how we use it, meaning someone's having hardship in life. For others, hell has become a bit of a joke. It's often joked around in, in, in TV and in shows. Uh, Karen and I, we watch, sometimes we watch the show Modern Family, and I was one of the, if you've ever seen the, the sitcom, one of the characters, his name is Jay, and he's talking about a friend of his who died, and he says, you know, I can just, I can just imagine, you know, Bob, he's, he's, he's right now looking up at me. And, it's, you know, and that was the joke, right? Um, you know, he's having a drink and he's looking up. And, and a lot of people look at that. They look at hell as, as kind of the place where it's a little more fun, actually, right? Um, Mark Twain, he said, go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company. He says, if you want to have fun, that's where you're going to go, right? In the words of a local band, Trooper, our calling in life is to what? Oh, you guys knew that too quickly. Raise a little hell, raise a little hell. Raise. Now, and, and also in the words of the great philosophers from Australia, the band ACDC, we've talked about this before. Hell is a party, highway to hell. Right? Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down party time, my friends, my friends are going to be there too. Where am I on? <laughs> I can see <laughs> you got all the rockers over there. All right. Now, a lot of people, as a result, they just write off this whole idea of hell. It's a hangover from the olden days. And I was reading some statistics. Um, still about 60% of North Americans believe in heaven. But less than 1% believe in hell. And so we come back to Jonathan Edwards' line, you know, sinners in the hand of the angry God. And, and people read that and they kind of smile to themselves and they, they think, ha, isn't, it, isn't it cute what they used to believe in the olden days? And I would guess that for many of us today, here, even here, that the idea of hell is something 
that we ignore or we find hard to accept. Now why? Well, again, it seems to run up against the goodness of God. And, and, and we're told, you know, as a church, we ought to be more welcoming and kind. You know, what do we say at church? We say, hey, you know, good morning. My name is David, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you're with us. And wherever you are on your journey and your spiritual journey, you need to know that you're most welcome here. And that's true. It is true. One of the things we seldom say is, you know, if you don't turn to Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Because I find, I find that that affects the whole atmosphere at the CA Church Newcomers Luncheons. <laughs> but the whole idea of hell rubs against this idea of loving God, of this loving God, and, uh, and it raises some really awkward questions, this idea of hell. Here's some of the questions, and there's lots of them. One, why would a perfectly good God create a world in which in the end some would be damned or even more, more likely some would be damned? Or why would God create a world in which he knew, he knew when he was creating everyone, he knew that some or many would be eternally damned to hell? That's an awkward question, but it gets even more awkward. Why would God create a world in which he would choose, he would elect some to be eternally damned to hell? Those are good questions, aren't they? And so, I know you have questions too. So I'm going to give you an opportunity around the table to say, what are some of the questions that you have when it comes to hell? Now, before you do this, let me give some guidelines. Some of you are like, well, let me tell you what I think about hell. No, 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 no. Don't. We're questions, right? Let's just like, uh, here's some things that I'm wondering about, okay? So just give as many opportunities for each other to just share whichever questions and don't rush in to answer what those questions are, okay? Right? This is just kind of get, getting the conversation going. You with me? Yeah? Good? Okay, so let's just pause here for a moment there. You guys have some really good questions, and uh, I'm so glad I said let's not answer them because part of me is like, I don't know how to answer some of these questions. Um, there are a lot of really, really good questions about the afterlife, and, uh, and they're important questions. But again, one of the challenges in this class, and I remember this when I was first teaching it, um, the challenge for this class is not to get pulled in a hundred different directions. We really actually say, okay, tonight we're going to talk about this, next week we're going to talk about this, and along the way your questions I hope will be answered. Otherwise it's easy to be pulled in a hundred different directions, okay? For a lot of people, the whole idea of hell, as I said, seems inconsistent with the love of God. And a lot of people reason that if God is all-powerful, if God is all-good, someone all-powerful would accomplish what he desires. Someone all-good would not wish anyone to suffer in such a place as hell. Therefore, hell's existence is incompatible with God being both all-good and all-powerful. And this is a tough one. This is a very serious challenge to the doctrine of hell, as it's traditionally been understood. Um, 
But it's a tough one because hell has been affirmed as a central doctrine in the Christian faith for centuries. There's a fellow named, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, um, Gage, 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 uh, Peter Gage, G-E-A-C-H, says this, he says, we cannot be Christians, followers of Christ, we cannot even know what it is to be a Christian unless the Gospels give at least an approximately correct account of Christ's teaching. And if the Gospel account is even approximately correct, then it is perfectly clear that according to that teaching, many men are irretrievably lost. It is less clear, I admit, that the fate of the lost, according to that teaching, is an endless misery rather than ultimate destruction. We'll talk about that in a bit. But universalism, where everyone is saved, is not a live option for a Christian. Again, we'll get back to this. I mean, it's pretty difficult to talk about just even the gospel. Because we talk about Jesus, what? Jesus saves. And it's hard to talk about Jesus saves unless you know saves from what? When we're talking about salvation, what am I being saved from? Jesus, he'll rescue you. Okay. From, from what? With, without a doctrine of hell, what does Jesus save me from? Maybe, maybe a boring life? Um, a purposeless life and without the doctrine of hell it could be said that Christianity can quickly become trivialized and what we're being saved from or rescued from amounts to being saved from maybe our psychological or existential issues that we may face in life and salvation essentially becomes about self-improvement having a better self-image I'm, I'm saved from having a bad self-image but that's a pretty sh big shift from what it's traditionally been understood as. If Jesus came as a modest program for self-improvement, then Christianity will very quickly slip into deism, maybe theism, but before long into atheism. Because why bother? And for many, Still, the doctrine of hell is too intense, it's too disturbing. And, and a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people want to have nothing to do with Christianity because they don't want to be seen as narrow-minded, cruel, or sadistic by believing in hell. And so it's a tough, we're in a dilemma because on one hand, it's central to the Christian faith throughout history has been the doctrine of hell. But today, to believe in hell makes you a morally suspect person, at least to the culture at large. So how do we proceed? Do we have to believe in hell? Can't we just ignore this topic and move to week three? <laughs> so here's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, we're going to look at what the Bible says about hell. Then we're going to look at, to see if there's a logic to hell or to damnation. Then we're going to look at why we don't like the idea of hell, and we'll lay out different ways hell has been viewed in history.
And finally, again, we're going to make a case for the logic of damnation. So this is, this is a lot to, to, to cover, but we can do this. So I'm going to tell you a couple of the books that I've been reading on this. Now, I have been reading so much on hell, I almost feel like asking Pastor Sam, this Sunday, can I just preach on hell instead of prayer? Because um, <laughs> it's on my radar right now. Uh, one of the famous uh, books is a book uh, called Edward uh, by Edward William Fudge, The Fire That Consumes. That's a... a quite a famous book. This is the one I made through my way through uh, in the last couple of weeks. Hell, the Logic of Damnation by Jerry Walls. This is a book on four views on hell. And, uh, and then, of course, kind of our textbook, uh, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. These are just some of the books that uh, I've been making my way through. So my starting point is a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm not a deist. I'm not a theist. I'm a Christian. And that means I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus says actually matters a lot to me. That's, that's who I am. I'm not a deist, not a theist. I'm a Christian. And so my starting point has to be Jesus, who he is, and what he did, and what it means. And so our Christian faith is rooted in a person and an event. Jesus Christ and the event is his life, death, and resurrection. And this person, Jesus, if he is who he says he was and did what we read about him doing, we need to take into serious consideration what he says. And Jesus teaches us that hell exists. Jesus taught more about hell than, than even Paul in, in, in the New Testament. Uh, he mentions it again and again through the Gospels. He mentions it 12 times. We learn about hell also in his apocalypse to his disciple John. In the passage that we just read this evening, get um, passages like in Revelation 20, which we read about the books and the books of life. People judged according to what they had done. Anyone who wasn't in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, one of the things that the Bible says about hell is, and this is... Um, this is a quite John, you asked this question about, about in the Old Testament, um, this understanding of shale, or and even sometimes in the New Testament, in, in the Greek, the, the word um, that we come across is the word Hades. And I have to say this, is that in the Old Testament, you get, you get hints. You get hints of the consequence of an, of an afterlife. But it's not really a developed doctrine in, in, in the Old Testament. And so you're going to be hard, there, there's, there's places where that point to the um, that, that that point to the doctrine of hell. There are some places, but it really gets formed in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, hell in the New Testament means at least four things. One, hell is a destination or an outcome. So what what is hell? Hell is a result of when you reject God, and therefore you reject the good. Hell is a result of turning your back on the salvation that Jesus offers us. If you push God away, if you reject the life he is offering to you, if you reject the author of life, what is left is hell. And hell is the outcome of a trajectory that moves away from the one who is all good. Again, if God is the author of life, then moving away from the author of life brings you towards what? Death or non-life, yeah. 
And in the Bible, hell is described using lots of different words. We talked about some of them, fire, destruction, darkness, weeping, the worm, gnashing of teeth. Um, but one of the words that's often used is this word Gehenna. And, and this is a picture of hell as, as a kind of dump. The language is, a, is, is that of a dump in the New Testament. Gehenna is a word, it comes from Old Testament prophetic passages that describe God's future judgment of the wicked in this valley, valley of um, Hinnom, or Gehenna, and we read about this in Jeremiah 7. In Jesus' day, Jews described Gehenna as a place where the wicked would be punished. And so Gehenna, this, this, this actual dumping place that you throw out your stuff and things are burned up and whatever, um, came to symbolize uh, a place of judgment. And so Gehenna and other hell-like images uh, describe, end up describing the fate of the wicked or the fate of those who are far away from God or the fate of the idolaters, the idolatrous. The other thing about hell that comes up in the, in the New Testament is that hell and death are enemies under the dominion of malevolent powers bent on destroying, but they're also limited in terms of what they can do. And so hell in the Bible stands for evil, darkness, misery, it's connected to idolatry. Uh, idolatry is making anything ultimate except for God. And so Jesus, he unpacks this. He, he teaches on this. And here's the thing. If you take Jesus seriously, you actually have to take his teaching seriously. And he teaches about hell. And he does so with utter seriousness. And he describes it in language almost as if hell is a place, a destination, set aside for those who rebel against their creator, who reject Jesus. And it is a place to be avoided at all costs. Now, people read that, and they hear this, and it, it's, they still struggle with this. And, and I've heard a lot of people say, yes, I, I hear what you're saying, David. I hear what you're saying, but come on. Why, why would a good God, you, you keep talking about God being so loving. Why would a God who is loving send anyone to hell? This is a really important question, and it's a question that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know how to answer. So why would a good God send anyone to hell? Let's, let's dive into this a little bit. We have to ask the first question. What do we mean that God is good? Well, well, God is good. That means he's kind, he's, uh, he disadvantages himself to the advantage of others, he's benevolent, he's forgiving, he's compassionate, and he's loving. Right? Amen? That's who God is. And which begs the question, why would a person who's compassionate, kindness, uh, kind, forgiving, um, why would he send anyone to hell? Why wouldn't he just forgive them? Right? That's who he is. But you have to realize there's, there's something else, though, is, and that is God's goodness also implies his holiness. That's part of the goodness of God. It also implies his purity, his cleanness, his justice. 
And all this goes together when we're talking about God's goodness. And so what God's goodness means also is that God is a God who will make all things right. Amen? He will restore all things in the end. God is just, and he's determined to make things the way they ought to be. And you look around this world, especially today, if you're looking in the news, it's pretty, what are we, 90 seconds from midnight, apparently, from the doomsday clock. We're 90 seconds, right? Um, I mean, you look around, something's deeply wrong with this world. The world is not as it should be. Something is profoundly and deeply broken. And so part of God's goodness is that God will make all things right. He is a God who will make it all well in the end. And could it be, could it be that it's the very goodness of God that means he cannot turn a blind eye to evil or to sin? Could it be that God knows every human heart and that part of making everything right is to reveal what's going on inside to judge us in a way that is fair and just. And I think one of our challenges with the doctrine of hell is we don't realize how good God is, how perfect he is, how just he is, how good and true and pure he is. Now, I'm going to say something controversial, maybe, but for God to be God, there needs to be hell. Because you know what hell means? Hell means that God takes your choices very seriously. If hell is a destination, if hell is the outcome of people's choices, right? to honor God or not to honor God. Hell is good because it means that our freedom and our choices are taken seriously by God. And we have to get this because a lot of us, we don't like the idea of hell, but we sure like the idea of free will. We like the idea of freedom. And freedom in our culture, in any culture, is a big deal for human beings. Two, what are the two things that are championed today are autonomy and the freedom to choose. Well, God says, all right, you have freedom to choose. These values are upheld. Jesus gives us autonomy and freedom and dignity and value to make choices. We are morally responsible beings, right? And we see this throughout the Bible. The books that are open at the final judgment, what's in the books? Well, the books are things that we've done, the decisions we've made. For good or for ill. And what this means is that God takes us seriously. He's given us an awful dignity, full of awe, of making important decisions. But our choices have consequences. Now, think about this. Without judgment, without judgment, without hell, then what are the ramifications for the choices we make? If you prefer not to talk about hell, then how are you taking moral choice seriously? If there is no hell, then it really doesn't matter what we decide to do in life. If there's no consequences to the decisions we make in this life, 
then how does this square with a picture of God's character who is just and holy? Now, some of you who are online or here, you might be here and you might, you, know, you might be thinking to yourself, do you know what? I actually don't believe in God. So none of this really matters to me. But I push back and I say, does this idea of living a consequence-free life even square with your own intuition about what life should be like? I mean, does it not make more sense to think that it... Uh, it <laughs> Does it make more sense to think that it doesn't matter what you do in life? I've shared this before. But if there's a person who's a, you know, who's a, um, a serial child abuser, someone who tortures, someone abuses, someone who murders children, uh, someone who, who, who just destroys the environment, or, or is there not part of you that says, hey, you need to, there should be consequence to your actions. And does it not seem to make sense that a person who lives an awful life, who does horrible things that hurts other people, that their consequences should be different than those who try to live right lives, good lives? Now, what hell does, it reveals that there are eternal consequences to the choices we make. And I say, you know, if you think about it, think about somebody who, who it's always, you know, someone who's just does horrible things. Yeah, I can think of, just think of Joseph Stalin. He's the guy who comes to mind. Yeah, he's responsible for probably at least 30 million deaths. At least. Dies in his bed. Lives to a ripe old age. And he just dies. Now, is there not part of you that says, wait, wait, wait. This should not be. This should not, he should not have gotten away with that. There should be some consequences, if not in this lifetime, then in another life, as a consequence for, for how he's lived his life. And so think, of, think about this. What, what hell does is hell actually honors the choices you make in life. But it also shows that there are consequences. If, for example, for example, let's say you go through your whole life and you actually don't give a rip about Jesus. You don't care about Jesus. You don't believe in Jesus. You want to have nothing to do with God. Don't even mention God. I want to have nothing to do with God. I want to have nothing to do with Jesus. I want to have nothing to do with the church. Now, you want to have nothing to do with God. Would God be respecting your free will if he says, tough, when you die, like it or not, you're stuck with me? How would that be honoring dignity and our free will? If you say, I want to have nothing to do with God, God says, ha, too bad, my love is so great, you are going to come to heaven whether you like it or not. All right, you could, you could do that, and here's the thing. You can make that argument, and people would make that argument. 
But I struggle with that because that means you're overriding my will. And, and, and God does give us free will. And if you want to live your own way, how is God's goodness revealed by forcing you into heaven? And I think to argue that hell is actually good, uh, it confirms something deep within us. Because when we see people, as I said, when we see people who get away with murder, literally get away with murder, something inside of us says, ah, oh, there's got to be consequence for your actions. And everybody feels that. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a God, believe in God. Everyone, when somebody gets away with stuff, you're like, this should not be. And what hell teaches, it teaches us that, um, that violence and evil that we see in our world, yes, it's there, but you know what? It will not have the final word. In the end, Jesus will make all things right. This means evil and sin will be removed forever from God's presence. It means that those who want to have nothing to do with God will be removed forever from God's presence. That's what hell is. And I think, I think our, to believe in hell actually helps us to make more sense of the world than anything else. There is a logic to damnation. Hell is a place or it's a state where evil will be bound once and for all. And, okay, this is going to sound strange. In some ways, hell is a, is a strange mercy towards those who want to have nothing to do with God. Let me say that again. Hell is a strange mercy given to those who want to have nothing to do with God. And one other thing that I will often say when talking about hell, when people say, oh, I don't believe in hell, and I say, okay, let's say you're God. What, what would you propose? What would you propose that honors our free will, that shows that our actions have consequences, that will make all things right in the end? You play God. You tell me, give it your best shot. What, what are you going to come up with? And I always say to people, it's like, well, you know, I think everybody, everybody should go to heaven. I'm like, okay. You're happy with, with, with Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin hanging out with those guys? Well, no. Not, not Pol Pot, not Stalin and Hitler. They're really bad. Okay. But you're still stuck with the question, what do you do with them? Right? What do you do with the Neros of this world? What do you do with, you know, with the, with, with, you know, the, um, Q Sampan and Paul Pot and you just go through the list, you know, uh, what do you do with these guys? Well, they go to heaven. Okay. Okay. So where do you draw the line? How bad do you have to be to be in this particular hell that you're allowing for? What criteria are you going to use? Now, how are you going to figure that out? Scripture teaches us that there are two kinds of people in the world, sinners and saved sinners. All of us are mortally affected by sin, so much so that we die from it. So why might we not like the idea of hell? I think we underestimate the power of evil and sin. 
even in our own lives. We have no idea how deep our stubbornness and independence goes. And we think that God ought to simply forgive us. Because we're not that bad, right? And we're sentimental about things. And we actually don't see the cost of forgiveness. Now, we're going to interact on this in a moment, but let me just say a couple more things. I think one of our challenges is that we're unaware or we don't want to be aware of the problem of sin and evil. That sin and evil actually damage the cosmos. And the cosmos needs to be restored. And there are people, there are people, and this is hard to believe, but I... I, I it's hard to believe, but I can believe it because I've been there. There are people in this world that even when presented with the glory and the beauty of God would nevertheless want to have nothing to do with them. I mean, that was me for a long time. C.S. Lewis has written a book called The Great Divorce. How many of you have read it? I see. Dave, you've read it, right? Yeah? Oh, you were talking about it. Yeah, there you go. A few of you have read it. Yeah? Okay, so The Great Divorce uh, is, is C.S. Lewis. It's a novel, and it's about this divine bus, this, this bus that comes from heaven into the Shadowlands. And it's basically people, um, there's people on the bus who know the people who are in the Shadowlands, which is almost like a picture of hell, and the people go to them to give them a second chance. To say, come on, you have to go to heaven. Come with me back to heaven. And so the whole book lays out people making an appeal to people in the Shadowlands saying, you know, so brother, an older brother seeing his younger brother saying, look, there's so much more. And Lewis makes a point. He says, no, no, there's stuff inside of our heart that even, even if we, when, when we're given a picture of what heaven could look like, we rather wallow in ourselves. And I think we fail to realize just how, how sin and evil, what, how, how deep they run in our hearts and how they incur a debt before God, a debt that needs to be paid. And that's what the cross is all about. That Jesus actually pays that debt that we couldn't pay. And Easter, the cross, shows us how seriously are the consequences of sin and evil and how seriously God takes us. Because of our sin, his son suffered and died. And the goodness of God, you want to know what the goodness of God is, is he does everything he can to rescue us. That's the goodness of God. But we're still faced with this reality. Either Jesus pays for your sins or you do. Payment must be made. Again, people hear this. They know this. They read salvation that Jesus saves. But they still want to have nothing to do with God. 
And so hell is real. Hell is real and it's awful beyond comprehension. We have to get this. Because um, sometimes you'll ask, people ask me questions about, you know, is heaven, you know, how are the streets actually, are they actually gold? Is it real gold? Are they, you know, these, you know, uh, you know, what kind of jewels are these? Are, you know, how do you make a window out of these jewels? And how, how is it gold, but you can also see through it? Because gold's not see-through and those sorts of things. Okay. It's not... It, what it's doing is pointing to greater realities, right? It's, it's, so what the Bible teaches us, let's say, about heaven is it uses language that point to something that's even greater, okay? So you think heaven is beautiful as it's described in, in the book of Revelation? It is, but that's just a, win, that's just a, a symbol of, of, of something that's so much greater, so much better than you we could ask or imagine, right? And that's really good news. But it works both ways. The language of hell is a language that points to greater realities. And as unpleasant as it looks in the Bible, this pointing to something you don't even want to think of how much, how much worse it's going to be. So that's a bit of the logic of hell. What I'm going to do is um, um, I'm going to have you guys, what time is it? Hour, okay. Are we okay? Yeah. Uh, maybe not. I got lots to say. <laughs> I'm going to give you just a couple minutes around your tables to say, okay, what stood out to you? What resonated with you? What do you disagree with? Um, just take a moment around your table to engage with some of the things that we've talked about so far. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes, then we have to carry on. Okay? Do you know what's fun about this class? <laughs> I'll tell you, Terry. You know what's fun about this class is that when we look at questions, all they do is create 30 more questions, right? <laughs> now, one of the questions that came up, Tamara, I'm going to, is that okay? Yeah. Is that whole idea of, of, you know, the example of Stalin, you know, responsible for 30 million deaths and he's on his deathbed and in reality, he shakes his fist at God and then he dies. Yeah, that's the story. Uh, he actually shakes his fist just before he dies. But what if Joseph Stalin said, I should not have done what I did. That's a lot of people to kill. Lord Jesus, would you please forgive me for, for all my sins and set me free. Now, part of us are like, are you serious? That's 30 million. You can't. You can't. Yeah. Now, so then the question becomes, and this is what I'm saying. I mean, a few things. One is, is God is not a system, and heaven is not a system. If I say this, if I say this right prayer, then I can get around this, and I get to. No, no. We're in a relationship with God. This is absolutely key. And so what is going on in your heart when you are repenting? If you're repenting of 30 million deaths, there's going to be something deeply, deeply painful going on there. The other thing is you're still going to have to stand before a holy God and, he, and, and, the, and the books of what you have done are going to be exposed before a holy God of what you have done. And tell me that won't be terrifying. And yet we still have to say that the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, yeah, saved a thief on the cross and... and 
you know, I've, I've been with people who've lived rough lives and they've cried out to Jesus on their deathbed. And, and you know, God knows, right? God knows how genuine their, their, their repentance or what's going on inside their heart. But we entrust them to the one who judges justly, right? That's what scripture teaches us. But, it's, <laughs> but there's part of us, and I think part of us that kind of gets a little annoyed about that is this fact that we are made in God's image and we desire justice. And, and that God will make all things right. There is part of us, and I don't think we need to shy away from that. But yeah, it's not in our hands. So what I'm going to do is just in our brief time um, remaining is I'm just going to lay out, there's, there's, there's a, a few different ways that hell, in terms of what hell looks like and what it's all about, um, look, uh, has been described. And so I'm going to lay out a few of them. The first one I'm going to go through very quickly, and that's universalism, um, because we touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, universalism is the view that in the end all will make it to heaven, basically. And the argument is, is, is more logical than exegetical. And it says, God loves everyone, doesn't want everyone to perish. God is omnipotent. God will make sure that nobody will perish. And so universalism is the only logical con conclusion. Because God is loving and he's powerful. So of course he's going to make sure that everyone will make it to heaven. Rob Bell, who's a, a, quite a well-known guy about 10, 15 years ago, wrote a book called Love Wins. And in that book he says, you know, in the end love is going to win out. God will not give up. Everything that was lost will be found. But there are problems with universalism. What are some of the problems? Well, for starters, it'd be hard-pressed to argue this perspective from, from Scripture. There's little or no support for universalism in the Bible. If you don't believe in the Bible, that's a different issue. Second is universalism. It sounds really nice. Sounds really nice, but in, for universalism to be true, it has to override our free will. Because what about those who do not want to be in the presence of God? Universalism says, oh, God will win them over. Well, what if they, what if they don't? What if they don't? So what happens to a person who really wants to have nothing to do with God? Well, God will just bring them in. Well, okay, well now... In order for universalism to be true, you have to violate the dignity of our free will. And that's a problem, I think. So I don't think it really holds. It, it has some proponents throughout church history. It actually has a long history. It goes right back to some church fathers. I think, um, I think Origen, is that right, Petro? Origen, yeah, he would have been a universalist, yeah. The other one that's, um, the other perspective is what is called eternal conscious torment. And this is a view of hell that has been dominant uh, over the centuries. Um, more and more evangelicals have become uncomfortable with this doctrine. Even a renowned pastor theologian such as John Stott once remarked, I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either, uh, without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. And some people struggle with the idea that when we die, if you go to hell, it is eternal, 
you're, and you are in conscience, conscious torment for eternity. And they struggle with this doctrine for a number of reasons. One, they say that eternal punishment contradicts the goodness, love, and compassion of God. It makes him a tyrant. Two, eternal punishment is disproportionate to the punishment to the degree of sin one commits. Why would I have to spend eternity in, like I only lived to 14 years old. Like I didn't do anything wrong. Yes, I didn't give my life to Jesus, but why am I experiencing the same kind of consequences as a Adolf Hitler? Right? The other thing is, the third thing is that the eternal punishment is punitive. It's not remedial. It's just, it just goes on and on and on. Now, a couple things to say. One, proponents of an eternal conscious torment view, they, they would argue that you have to focus on who is being sinned against. It's not so much the sin that you do, it's who you are sinning against. And who you are sinning against is God, and God is infinite holy. And so the consequences of sin must also be infinite. And the problem we have is that our view of God and God's holiness is too small. Secondly, the foundation of this view has sometimes, not always, but has sometimes been the fact that every human being has a soul, and that soul is immortal. Every human being has an immortal soul. And so if you are consigned to hell, it has to be eternal. Because your soul is eternal. So that would be, and so the, the, the question is, is will this immortal life that you live, will it be spent either with God or without God? And in this perspective, hell is locked from the outside. Uh, hell is a place of punishment where one is in um, conscious torment forever. The third one is that there are scriptural passages that seem to support this view. And I've given you a, a number of the passages there. In each one of these passages, the argument is that you have a picture of final separation, unending experience, and just retribution. So you can look at those passages in your spare time this week. But there are awkward implications associated with eternal conscious torment. One is the finality of this view. Uh, the person who rejects God, they, they, if they die, they are forever going to be in conscious torment in hell. There's no way out. Two, God foreordained from the beginning of the world who is to be saved and who is to be damned. This is an idea that often goes with this. And so... This idea is that God foreordains who is not going to be in relationship with him and will be in hell. And so why would God, it goes back to the earlier question, why would God create someone knowing full well that this person is going to spend eternity in hell? And the other thing is that... <laughs> It's an awkward part of this perspective, and it's, it's, it seems to override our free will. Because in my life, could I choose Jesus if I wanted to? I mean, some proponents of this view would say, no, no. God would only choose his elect to be in heaven, and the rest 
will be in hell. So that means even if I wanted to choose Jesus, if I am not elect, if I am not pre-chosen, if I'm not preordained, I cannot ever go to heaven. And that's awkward. Okay, so something to think about. That's a perspective that, that people have on hell. The, th the third one is annihilationism. And annihilationists understand the term hell to refer to the process of destruction, not a permanently existing process. So you're, so you're not living eternally in conscious torment. It's just a process of disappearing. And um, that's uh, this guy, Edward Fudge. Uh, he writes this book and uh, lays out that perspective. Now, there's different views of an annihilationism. Um, the idea behind annihilationism is this, is one who has not accepted Christ simply ceases to exist after death. Because if Jesus is life and you're not with Jesus, you don't exist. And there's a logic. To be away from the author of life is to be in a state where one is no longer existing. Now, I'll just throw out this one idea. <laughs> this is kind of a interesting one, and it's a form of annihilationism called conditionalism. You didn't know that there are all these different views, right? Um, conditionalism says this, okay, and it tries to deal with some of the problems. Okay, listen to this. Conditionalism says that when you die, there will be an appropriate punishment for the degree of sin that you carried out in your life. Okay? So right away, you, you, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you're stopping a guy like Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist, said, how, how it's so unfair that, you know, a child who's done nothing wrong would be punished eternally in the same way that Hitler would be punished. Well, this says, no, no, you're punished according, there's consequence to your sin. There is consequences to your sin, but it's in proportion to the degree of your sin. Once that has been paid off, then you cease to exist. Well, and then I have some scripture passages down there if you want to look at. And if you also want to look at this book, uh, Ray, you can take a look at that as well. Now, these are different perspectives that are out there. There's lots of perspectives on this. I'm just giving you a, a taste of some of the ideas. Now, there's still some lingering questions about hell. No, or have I, I actually, I, I think I've answered them all, haven't I? <laughs> okay, let's look at a couple more just before we finish tonight. Okay, we got it, we're, we're doing okay. Um, what is the nature of suffering in hell? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? Is hell locked from the inside or from the outside? How many people are in hell? Will there be a second chance? We will talk about that. That one we're not going to deal with tonight, but we're going to talk about that later on. Because we only have 15 minutes. <laughs> um, what is the nature of suffering in hell? Well, hell is described as a place of fire. Place is alternately described as a place of darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. For much of church history, it's been described as a place where there's spiritual and physical suffering. Um, 
the spiritual suffering is the idea that when one stands before the glory of God and sees who God is and all of his glory and his beauty and his power and his holiness and just who God is and then to be told to leave this presence, leave his presence, that that would be hell. That would be incredible suffering. Then again, there are those who would come in the presence of God said, I never knew you and I don't want to know you. Will there be physical suffering? Historically, thinker, uh, theologians have, have, have said yes. Um, only because we're embodied beings. We have resurrected bodies. And if we are going to spend a duration in hell, then our spiritual anguish is going to spill over to our bodies. That's, it makes logical sense. Um, what will the physical suffering look like? Well, it could be isolation. That's, uh, that's C.S. Lewis's argument. He says the damned are moving farther and farther away from each other. It's interesting. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but in Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, in the Inferno, you go further and further down through the rings of hell to get to the very bottom where, where, where the devil is. Um, it's interesting. Little details in Dante's Inferno is that the further down you go, people don't speak to each other. All community is destroyed. And there's examples of two people next to each other, but they're oblivious to the presence of each other. And Dante's doing that on purpose. He's saying the further down you go, the further away from God you go, the, the, you have no, the, the more isolated you are. And then the further down you go, I told you, it, it gets colder and colder and colder. And so you're frozen. There's no warmth. There's no community. There's nothing. Is hell locked from the inside or the outside? Well, it depends which position you hold on this. If you believe in eternal conscious torment or annihilationism or other perspectives. Jerry Walls, who's a guy I really like, and I read his book on hell, um, he, he offers an interesting perspective. He argues that the suffering of hell is a natural consequence the sufferings of hell are the natural consequences of living a life of sin. And so hell is not an arbitrary punishment. Now you have to follow me on this one. I know we're looking at some thick theological stuff. So for Walls, he would say hell is not some punishment that God imposes upon you. Hell is self-inflicted punishment. It's the punishment that comes from, yeah, from, from living a life contrary to God's ways. Right? And, and, we, and we know that. Like, if, you are a, if you are a person who's consumed with anger, and that was me for a long time, consumed with anger, I never felt peace. Never felt peace. If you're a person who's always resentful, you can never be content. And so what Wall says, he says, in other words, the misery of hell is not so much a penalty imposed by God to make a sinner pay for his sin, as it is a necessary outcome of living a sinful life. When we live our life apart from the ways of God, we go in ways that seem right, but in the end lead to destruction and death, right? 
And Lewis talks about this in his Chronicles of Narnia because he has a picture in the last battle, in the last book, he has these dwarves. Do you guys have, have you read that book? And the dwarves are basically, it's an interesting picture, they're actually in heaven, but they're so consumed with their sin that they can't see the light, they still think they're in the darkness, a banquet table is prepared before them and they think it's, it's, it's filth and garbage. But they're like, at least we're in charge of our lives. The dwarves are for the dwarves, right? And so they can't even see heaven, even though they're there, because they are, they are consumed with themselves. Yeah. And uh, Walls asks a question. He says, you know, and Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Uh, Walls asks a question. He says, in, in, in hell are there many rooms that reflect the nature of our rebellion against God? And again, he argues, if we have resurrected bodies, it does stand to reason that hell is not just a space, but also a place. I, I, I like walls. I like some of the things he says, because um, it connects our life and our decisions we make with eternity. And what this means is that how the decisions we make now matter. The decisions we make now have eternal consequences. And that's always been the biblical view. It's always been the, the, the view that how we live now does have ripple effects for eternity. Now, I'm going to give you just one more chance to, uh, one more chance. <laughs> Sounds terrible. This is your last chance. Um, I'm going to give you one more opportunity uh, to talk. So I've laid out a couple of these views. Now, again, some of you here be like, it's eternal conscious torment. It's eternal. Con it's annihilation. You're, you got strong set opinions. All right. Just pull back. Um, talk about these things around your table. And I'm going to give you three or four minutes to do this. Which perspective kind of stands out? Which one kind of has a ring of truth or none of them? Or what, what do you think? And then I'll g close things off with just some final implications. Worms and the worm won't die. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, okay. So... I'm assuming that most of the questions were answered tonight. That's really good to know. <laughs> Actually, I went around and I was talking to a few people and some questions that did come up. And some of these questions we will be dealing with in the weeks ahead. One of the questions was, is, uh, do we get a second chance? And so that's, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Okay. Some final thoughts. Some final thoughts. As followers of Jesus Christ, we never delight in hell. Why? Because but for the grace of God, we're all in the same boat. Never delight in hell. Second, we have a mission. And part of that mission is being honest about hell. And I'll tell you, in our day and age, talk about a subject that's hard to speak about. Um, hell is, you know, compared to 20 years ago or 30 years ago, very difficult. And yet, as somebody once said, uh, if you don't want to talk about hell, then what are you saying by your silence? 
Thirdly, our mission is urgent. I've quoted this guy before, C.T. Studd. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I like that, the evangelist, C.T. Studd. Whether or not people accept the gospel is not up to us. Our, our job is to be obedient. But the other thing that comes out of this, the implication, is that if all that we've said, all that we've looked at tonight is true, then you and I need to make good choices. Our choices matter. Are we following Jesus? Are we cultivating a taste for the things of Jesus? And sometimes we ask ourselves, why bother slogging against evil? What's the point? Well, Scripture teaches us that God has authority over all history and is active in the world. And Jesus is coming, and he will make all things right. And so the decisions we make and the choices we make, the small choices that we make, of where we scroll, for example, these things matter. Now, some people would still want to push back. They're saying, well, you know, what about, what about my grandmother? Or what about my cousin? What about my son? Um, are they in hell right now? And I, you know, I do a lot of funerals. Hi, Janice. Um, I do a lot of funerals, and I, I often get asked those questions. And the reality is, is that when a person dies, they're in, they're in the presence of God. And, and Christianity is not a system. You have to get this. It's not a mechanism. If I do this and this, this it's, it's, no, we are in a living relationship with the living God. And when someone is in the presence of God, we entrust them to the one who judges justly. It's not in our hands. But I always say this to people when people say, well, what about, what about, uh, <laughs> what about those, you know, in Africa? And I said, well, they've heard the gospel. Because there are more Christians in Africa than there are in Coquitlam. What you mean to ask me is, what about those on Burke Mountain? What about Westwood Plateau? What about Vancouver? Like, because those are the hard slogging places. And so people say, what about those who've never heard the gospel? I said, that's a good question. And you know what? We are going to talk about that. But I always say this. That's a good question. But you've heard the gospel. What are you going to do about it? And then we'll talk about these hypothetical people that you're so concerned about. Um, you've heard it. And so I want to leave you with the questions, the awkward questions. Where is your life heading? What will shape your life? Will we, like the atheist Frederick Nietzsche, thumb our nose to Jesus and say, I got this? Or will we, like Dante, recognize the love that moves the stars and give our lives to the lover of our souls? Let's pray. Jesus, this is tough stuff that we've been looking at tonight, and yet you are our Lord and you are the God who reveals. And you have revealed that there are consequences to our actions. And you have revealed this vision of, of, of hell and what it is and what it isn't. And uh, we do pray, Lord, that um, our vision of the end will determine how we live now. 
Help us to be so heavenly minded that we are of some earthly good. Help us to live with the end in mind. We commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.